This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. NAFTA talks resuming uh, tomorrow as President Trump continuing his efforts to bring Canada in on a quote-unquote new deal. He stated this morning in a tweet that there was, quote, no political necessity, end quote, to keep Canada in a new NAFTA deal. The president spent the uh, holiday weekend tweeting about our neighbors to the north as well as Congress and labor unions, after AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka told Fox News he didn't see how a deal would work without Canada. Canadian officials say that they won't sign anything that doesn't work for them. Last week, the White House said it had reached an agreement with Mexico, which includes new rules on auto manufacturing, the digital economy, and agriculture. With more on this, we're joined here in studio by Wharton's Mauro Guillen, who's a professor of international management, as well as director of the Lauder Institute. And joining us on the phone is Matt Gold, adjunct professor uh, at Fordham University's law school, and he's also a former deputy assistant U.S. trade representative for North America. Mauro? Great seeing you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Matt. Great to have you back with us. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, So, Matt, uh, the latest words out of the president's mouth, no political necessity to have Canada in a new NAFTA agreement. Your reaction? (laughs) My reaction is, yeah, there's political necessity. Um, Sometimes President Trump likes to to say the exact opposite of the way things are. He's trying to put spin on the ball. You know, it's kind of like when you're playing baseball and so where you're watching baseball, and someone hits that line drive towards the foul pole and you want it to go fair and be a home run and not go foul. And you stand there with your arms waving to try to make the ball go inside the foul pole. This is what president Trump is doing. He's trying to like make that be true when the opposite is true. Um, you know, uh, let's take a couple steps backwards. I've been, saying for a year and a half on this show that, that we just don't really have the leverage. Trump never had the leverage. The United States never had the leverage to get most of the things that we wanted in this renegotiation. Um, and that's why we didn't attempt it before, uh, before President Trump was in office. Um, you mentioned we are getting things on the digital economy and agriculture. We're actually getting a bunch of things, but none of those are concessions from Canada or Mexico. Those are all things that all three countries wanted to update and benefit all three countries mutually. Those are things that the three countries agreed in principle on the first day and spent about nine months working out the actual text of the changes. Uh, but now, once, once that had happened, by the time we got to February, March, it, it came time for, for the, the countries to actually start making concessions to things they didn't want to do. And, of course, that just never happened because um, we never had the leverage to get, to get those things done. Um, of, the, of Trump's six major asks, um, he's pretty much had to give up or he's going to have to give up on five of them. And he got part of one of them, which was a North American a shift in the North American rules of origin for, for automotive. And that's what you mentioned with Mexico. He got agreement on some changes to the North American content requirement, the automotive rules of origin. That is getting partially one of his six asks. The other ones he, he's really not going to get. Um, and two of those are things that are particularly important to Canada. Uh, they are the removal of Chapter 19 from the agreement, and they are uh, the other one is the removal of Canadian uh, tariffs on U.S. poultry, eggs, and traditional dairy products. And that's where the U.S. and Canada are kind of stuck. But we've been stuck in this way for for you know 24 plus years. Yeah. And the real, reality is is that uh, um, you know President Trump doesn't have any more leverage with regard to those things than he had a year and a half ago, um, and so he's just getting more and more frustrated. Uh, and doesn't really quite know what to do now. Mara? 
Well, no, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, we're all on the same, on the same page. I think what uh, people need to uh, uh, think carefully about here is uh, uh, regarding the, the one agreement, uh, clear agreement uh, with Mexico, which is about uh, raising the um, minimum uh, content rule. Yeah, uh, and uh, asking companies to produce at, uh, nearly half of the automobile with workers who earn at least uh, sixteen dollars is yeah. that uh, you know money you know doesn't rain from heaven. Uh, meaning that, uh, uh, in other words, uh, consumers are going to pay for that. Uh, uh, automobile sales are going to be a hit uh, one way or another. Consumers are going to be paying more uh, for those cars. This doesn't come uh, free. And, uh, you know, this is all for the sake of saving, you know, 5,000 jobs or 10,000 jobs. That's about it. Uh, and remember, uh, those workers are also consumers, so they're also going to be hurt as consumers sure. if this continues. Now, the, the number that you mentioned at the beginning on SUVs, of course, uh, sales of uh, American brands of SUVs are growing here because they're protected by a 25% tariff that we're all paying, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the, the tariff for cars is 25 for trucks, and SUVs fall under that category. Is 25%, and uh, Ford General Motors, uh, they no longer make uh, cars. They no. make SUVs for the U.S. market. So we're all paying for that, all of us consumers. Uh, this doesn't come free. This is the thing that, uh, you know, uh, all of these um, mercantilist uh, views about trade, that we have to have a, a trade balance and that we have to bully all of our neighbors, including Canada, which, by the way, is the most important destination of U.S. exports. Yeah. All of that, at the end of the day, we pay Right as consumers, and uh, and this is what I think is getting lost in this uh, whole debate. All for five or ten thousand jobs, uh, the U.S. economy has created hundreds of thousands of jobs over the last uh, few years. Uh, you know, we are going to hurt everyone, right, for the sake of helping five thousand or ten thousand people. That's wrong. And uh, the other important cost, I think, is the image that the United States is projecting to the rest of the world that we're no longer the champions of free trade, and this is going to come back to haunt us. Right? If other countries perceive the U.S. as being protectionist, this is going to hurt us in the future. Uh, these things have costs, right? And uh, I don't think uh, we're paying enough attention to the costs. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or questions. Joined in studio by Mauro Guillen of the Wharton School and on the phone with Matt Gold of uh, Fordham University, an adjunct professor there. 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone on Twitter, at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So, Matt, what expectation then do you have for these conversations between the U.S. and Canada in the next several days? Because as you kind of laid out, when the announcement that uh, that the White House made that the United States and Mexico had reached some sort of agreement, within, what, 48 hours, we saw conversations between the representatives of the United States and Canada. Um, yeah. Uh, first, let me just say real quickly, uh, it's absolutely correct that the U.S. has a 2.5% customs duty on cars and 25% on trucks. Um, though, interestingly enough, SUVs are, are considered cars um, for that purpose, not trucks. Um, that was a, a case that, that I, I actually was one of the people who litigated that many, many years ago. Um, and, but I think that this surge in sales has a lot to do with, with buyers being concerned that the price of, of cars uh, and trucks, um, light trucks, are, are going to go up significantly if the, pres the president's been threatening to impose uh, new national security tariffs on those. And so I think there was a rush to, uh, there's been a rush to, to buy them. Um, but that having been said, coming up this week, we now have negotiations um, 
on um, uh, with Canada, and, and the objective is to bring Canada into the into what what uh, what would be the revision of NAFTA. And again, the, you know, the United States and Canada are stuck on on those two issues that I, that I spoke about earlier. Uh, and I don't think the Canadians are going to give on either of them. I don't think that we are offering them anything um, that would make it worth their while to give. Uh, I think their strategy from the beginning has been to publicly act like they're taking Trump's threats to pull out of NAFTA seriously, but privately they don't. They never believed it would happen, and they still don't. Uh, so in the negotiating room, when the doors close, they simply don't give in on these things because they don't have a reason to. Um, and the real question is, what is President Trump going to do? Is he going to give in? Um, he gave in on his demand for U.S. content uh, requirement in the automotive rules of origin. They only fix the North American content. Right. He gave in on his demand to change the, buy, the procurement rules for his Buy America program. He, he gave in pretty much on his demand for a, a five-year sunset provision, though there's a six 16-year sunset provision in the Mexico agreement. The Canadians will never agree on that, and they'll probably get thrown away if Canada joins it. Um, so the question is, will Trump uh, also give in on um, eliminating the tariff-free quotas on American poultry eggs and, and, and traditional dairy products? And will the president um, give in on removing Chapter 19? It's really it, it's about whether Trump will yield on these things, have um, really a failure and declare victory. Uh, all before the midterm elections for his political benefit, or not. And if not, then everything will depend on the United States when it happens in the midterm elections. Or yeah, no, I, I agree. And, uh, and uh, forgive me again for having said SUVs. I meant light trucks and pickup trucks, which was, I, uh, yeah. I, I thought it was the, uh, right? And those are on the, 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 the so my, my mistake on that, I hope I didn't mislead uh, too many listeners and yeah. uh, they were rushing to the dealership <laughs> uh, you know, to, get a, uh, to get a car. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's just taking one step back also. Uh, I just want to mention one thing f- uh, for the longer run here, because uh, we need to also think about the longer run in terms of uh, the bargaining power of the United States. The bargaining power of the United States depends on the size of its market. Right. Uh, up until recently, has been the largest market in the world. Uh, now, the European Union market—if you consider that market to be a single market, which uh, you know is up to discussion or debate—it uh, is larger. And that uh, China eventually will become larger, and then after that, India. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've been saying this all along. Um, even even now, the president is having trouble bullying trade partners uh, as small as Mexico and Canada. Just imagine when the U.S. no longer is by a wide margin, the largest market in the world. And that's going to happen within five or ten years. Uh, but again, I mean, we are undermining our own position by bullying today uh, and then tarnishing our reputation as not being champions of free trade. And that's going to cost us dearly five years, ten years down the road, especially when our market is no longer clearly the largest in the world. Uh, this is going to be really hard, right? So for a few gains today, I think we're potentially mortgaging our future uh, in terms of uh, you know the image and the uh, and the uh, uh, power that we will have in, in negotiations for years to come. Well, the the auto piece to go back to that for a second, Matt, is interesting because we we saw for a, a long period of time here in the United States the the auto sales numbers post recession obviously were so low at one point, but they obviously came back to record numbers two years ago. But last year we actually saw a dip in auto sales here in the U.S. down two percent, and I think the expectation this year is that it's going to be flat or maybe lower again. So the trending on, on auto sales in the U.S. has been dipping the last two years to begin with anyway. Uh, yeah, and, you know, it's I'm not really an expert on, you know, auto uh, retail sector 
Um, but I think that, you know, there's, there's some cyclical nature there a little bit just in connection with the general economy. Um, also, you get cycles because when the, when the economy swings positive, people buy cars, and then, you know, seven years later, everyone holding off to buy a car has to, you know, start looking at buying a new one because the cost of repairing them gets, gets high So when the, when, the, when the warranties run out. So there's a little bit of a, a cyclical nature to that, that that is even disconnected from where the economy is. Um, but at the end of the day, um, I, I think that, uh, you know, what, what Trump's threats to impose tariffs on autos um, and this renegotiation of the North American content requirement, the automotive rules of origin, are really disconnected from any reality uh, that exists in the automotive sector. Um, the, the automotive companies did not support um, reoriented the automotive rules of origin um, in NAFTA. And even auto labor was very, very cautious about supporting Trump's desire for changes. Uh, it, most of what Donald Trump wants to do with NAFTA is entirely about his own politics and not really about helping um, any particular sector or workers in any particular sector. And there, there tends to be a disconnect. So um, you know, it, it's hard to look at where automotive sales are and then look at the Trump administration's trade policy and, and make a connection between the two. Uh, yes, I entirely agree. I mean, there is a, uh, too much politics uh, into this. And, of course, uh, at some level, trade is also about politics. Uh, but on this issue of uh, the retail uh, U.S. market, again, uh, it, it seems as if this administration is trying to uh, win a battle uh, yeah. in the 19th century about uh, mercantilism and about, uh, you know, uh, when, uh, you know, the, the automobile sector and retail sales are going to change fundamentally over the next few years if we have autonomous vehicles. Uh, sure. Because yeah. how many people are yeah. going to own a car, right? Yeah. We're going to have cars, but they may not be owned by people. They may be shared, right? That doesn't mean we're going to have fewer cars in the roads, right? But the pattern of ownership, the pattern of sales, everything. So, in other words, uh, we're trying to renegotiate this, right, based on, uh, you know, a reality that existed a long time ago, right? Uh, and uh, raising concerns, right? Uh, that I don't think are going to be important or relevant in five years or ten years down the road. Yeah. Uh, so, so the whole thing, you know, I, I, from my perspective, is, is, is really uh, problematic. I want to add that the reason why the companies don't want uh, to change the rules is that they've been making investments over the last uh, 20 years based on the existing rules. Yeah. It's as simple yeah. as that. Yeah. The one thing that business hates, right, is uncertainty. Sure. And it's changing the rules, right, when they've already been committing to investments and they, and, and they will continue to commit to investments. They would prefer to have the same rules, right? Uh, so, in other words, uh, for the uncertainty about the rules to be removed so that they can then allocate all of their attention to what they need to do, which is to compete in the marketplace, right? Potentially, Matt, what do you think should have been done at this point? I mean, where where NAFTA was prior to all of this negotiation and want for change from the administration, take us through your opinion of uh, of NAFTA as an entity with all three countries involved, and whether or not there there were even potentially tweaks that may have been needed to uh, to the agreement along the way. Sure. Great question. Never been asked that, but thrilled to answer it. Um, I can tell you what I was thinking when I was um, President Obama's, uh, you know, lead advisor on, on NAFTA and negotiator, the highest level person who was dedicated to NAFTA and North American trade issues. Um, I, I, um, my thought process was, first, uh, NAFTA has a, a few real flaws, um, which we'd like to fix because it's a 24-year-old agreement. All this um, updating 
updating rules that relate to digital commerce, updating rules that relate to you know, inspection of, of, of uh, animal and animal products and plant and plant products like beef and grain. And, you know, and a series of other rules that you don't really hear about have all been, you know, we, we've renegotiated now some telecom rules that make it easier for cross-border phone calls and cross-border wireless calls. And, and you know, we, all those updated, update things were things that, that NAFTA needed. Um, you know, had Mexico and Canada been excited about negotiating in a series of updates, we would have done it a long time ago. The cost of dragging Mexico and Canada kicking and screaming to the table is so high that it, the damage done by doing that is not worth those gains, which is why we didn't do that, because um, they weren't willing to go. And it, it, it's much too much damage to force them the way Trump has. Um, but those are all things that, that certainly are good changes that are good. Um, there are other things that the United States wanted to change like removing Chapter 19, like the Canadian tariffs on poultry, dairy, and eggs, uh, that frankly also um, needed to be changed, but we just didn't have the leverage to make it happen. And then came the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP. And um, we brought Canada and Mexico into the TPP negotiations, and had things stayed on the course that they were on before President Trump came into office, um, TPP would have entered into force for 12 countries, including the United States, Canada, and Mexico. And that would have changed the dynamic profoundly, because at that point, for the first time, the United States really can pull out of NAFTA, because we should have free trade with Mexico and Canada through TPP. We don't really right. need free trade through NAFTA. And once we can pull out of NAFTA, then we can threaten to pull out, and it's credible. And then we have two simple options. One is we just pull out of NAFTA, and that, that's the end of the problems with NAFTA. And the other is we, we tell the Canadians and Mexicans, look, unless we can change this, 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 and this, we're going to pull out. And at that point, we can really dictate the changes, and we could have fixed um, the few problems that NAFTA really had or just pulled out, which would have, for the most part, solved those problems. And, and that's where things were going until Donald Trump came into office. He pulled out the TPP on his first full business day in office, not even beginning to comprehend the implications of what he was doing. And then after throwing away his leverage with Mexico and Canada, he then announced he was going to negotiate with Mexico and Canada. Now, this is the thing, right? Uh, so if I may add here that uh, Trump believes that all negotiations should be bilateral. Right. He doesn't yep. like, uh, yep. you know, uh, to sit at the table and negotiate with uh, with more than one person. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, uh, I don't know what, uh, you know, what your opinion here is, but uh, it seems to me that it's very difficult in this interconnected world, actually, to uh, uh, negotiate uh, bilateral trade agreements one at a time, right? And then hope <laughs> that uh, things will somehow make sense, right? Because they take uh, for such a long period of time for to consumers. begin with. Yeah. Well, not only that, but also, you know, you negotiate something over here, you think you've concluded a deal, and then you negotiate sure. something with another country, and, uh, you know, there's some incompatibility, or, yeah. you know, companies then don't like that, or investors, uh, you know, um, protest, or... Uh, so it's, it's really difficult to do this uh, one deal at a time, right? A bilateral deal at a time. Uh, as opposed to having a, a more comprehensive strategy as to what is the best way for the United States to negotiate its uh, trade policy with uh, with the rest of the world. And, and unfortunately, that's probably what President Trump has dealt with all of his business career is that one-on-one, -on -one, oh, make a deal, and that's what he's used to. So people will go with something that they're used to in compared to trying something different that maybe they don't have a full appreciation for, correct? I, I think so, yeah. Matt? Yeah, I think uh, Trump has, you know, uh, the great example is that example of him and the marble contractor um, where <laughs> where the marble contractor came to the Taj Mahal, did a fantastic job. He just didn't feel like paying the guy. So he walked around with the contractor and said, oh, that's horrible. That's terrible. I'm not going to pay you. And then and then ultimately, in order to get paid, 
the contractor had to accept the pennies on the dollar. Um, you know, that's not negotiating, that's cheating. And that kind of cheating doesn't work on the world stage with, with leaders of sovereign governments who have their own constituencies watching them and they can't, they can't let themselves get bullied, even if in the short run they'd rather just compromise that they can't afford to do it politically. Um, and, um, you know, the other thing Trump doesn't comprehend is that sometimes in a, in a multilateral free trade agreement, we have far more leverage, not less. Um, the TPP is a classic example of that because of just brilliant strategy and tactics by President Obama and uh, Michael Froman, uh, who was his deputy national security advisor at the time for international economic affairs, and Ron Kirk, who was the U.S. trade representative. We managed to get so much leverage in the TPP negotiations in multiple directions uh, by playing countries off of each other and, and also by doing things. Look at, look at Mexico and Canada. Perfect example. Look at Canada. We had so much more leverage on Canada in the TPP negotiations than we do in a NAFTA renegotiation, because in a NAFTA renegotiation, we don't have anything to offer them. I mean, they already have free trade access to our market. We can't really pull out even if we threaten to. And so what are we offering them? We, we have nothing to give them, so we can't. That's what I mean when, we, when I say we have no leverage. In the TPP, we were offering Canada free trade access to Japan's market which it didn't have. And, and we offered both those countries free trade, free trade access to multiple Asian Pacific markets, some of which it didn't already have free trade access to. And that, that provides leverage. Um, you know, and so by making ourselves the gatekeeper of TPP, by going into it when it was smaller, becoming the leader, and then being the gatekeeper who admitted other countries or didn't admit other countries, we got huge leverage over Mexico and Canada. Right. Um, and I, you know, I managed that process by which we let Canada into TPP and, and the separate process by which we let Mexico into TPP. And we had the kind of leverage there that, that couldn't possibly exist in a trilateral just NAFTA-only negotiation. Well, neither Trump nor anyone around him even begins to understand these dynamics, which is why I say that they're not competent negotiators. Right. Now, am I correct in the fact that it, if something is agreed to, Matt, here with Canada in the next few weeks, uh, that the U.S. Congress still must review it before it can actually be put into play, correct? Yes. Um, uh, the... In order, if we, if we, are you talking about a new bilateral free trade agreement with Mexico, or are you talking about a trilateral where Canada joins? A, a trilateral that eventually Canada would join. Well, in order for it to go forward, Canada has to have already joined it. Let's start yeah. with that. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And assume, assuming they agree on something this week, um, then um, the president can you know notify Congress. Um, and then uh, within 30 days, we have to give, they have to give Congress the final precise text, comma for comma, as it's going to be. So they'd have a lot of work to do, because right now, this week, if they agreed, it would only be agreements in principle. Um, Correct. If yeah. Trump, Trump capitulates, then pretty much they already have the text of what they need. But if, if Canada capitulates on anything, they still have text to negotiate. Um, and then, uh, yeah, then, then the... Um, uh, the Congress will eventually have to take a vote. I mean, several steps have to have in the middle. They have to, you know, there ha it has to be published. Um, it has to, you know, the U.S. National Trade Commission has to do a study. Um, you know, there'll be a signing ceremony. But eventually Congress will take a vote, and their vote will be to, to one vote will serve two purposes. Um, it will serve to approve the agreement, uh, and it will also serve to enact a new, a new law, a new statute that will implement our obligations under the agreement. Um, and uh, uh, that would be a simple majority vote in each house. Which I, I bring up only because of the political nature we are in right now and the time frame we're looking at of whether or not Congress would potentially 
say no to an agreement that had been negotiated by Robert Lighthizer and, and the other members of the trade delegation, Matt? Um, you know, I think in the end, the agreement they're all going to come to will be an agreement that, that has all of these large number of small revisions, these updates that are mutually beneficial to all three countries. And it's a positive for the United States, even though it doesn't have the fixes that everyone in Congress wants, it'll still be a, a net positive. And I think Congress will probably be willing to approve it. I just don't think any longer it's possible to get that done before um, the president of Mexico, Enrique Peña Nieto, leaves office. Um, I mean, they gave a notice already that fits into that time frame, but that notice did not involve something that Canada had agreed to. So they're really going to have to give another notice. Uh, and that pushes the time frame back till after the new Mexican president enters office. And that's the other piece to the story is the fact that Mexico, Moro, is agreeing to something in principle here as they're having the transition of power in Mexico at this point. Well, of course, exactly. And also the Mexicans will expect that the Congress won't change that deal and all of that. But that Matt, perhaps, uh, since you know this uh, you know, really, really well firsthand, uh, another clarification that I think is important is uh, fast-track authority versus not, right? When NAFTA no. was approved... Uh, uh, there was fast-track authority, and I'm not exactly sure exactly where we stand right now in terms of uh, whether this would be uh, a deal that would come under fast-track authority. In other words, that Congress would uh, you know, only be able to accept it or reject it but not amend it. Um, and where, where do we stand on that? I mean, that's the other e- big issue here, right? Matt? Oh, well, if it's a trilateral deal, yeah, they, they have complied with all the fast-track rules so far. They'll continue to uh, uh, comply, and they'll have that available, but it, we will go past in order to continue to comply with the time frames, you're going to have to complete it after the new Mexican president takes office. Right. Right. If it's a bilateral deal with Mexico, no possibility uh, that they comply with fast track. Um, they would have to go backwards 90 days um, in order to do that because they have to give notice under fast track. One of the things they have to do is give notice to Congress 90 days before they even start the negotiations. And that notice has to include um, not only exactly which countries they're talking to, but also whether they're revising an existing agreement or, or negotiating a new one. So they did give notice to Congress about revi- talking to Mexico and Canada about revising NAFTA, but they've never given notice uh, to Congress about talking to just Mexico and, and creating a new bilateral yeah. agreement. So, uh, you know, to, to get fast track for a bilat with Mexico would require, um, you know, a much longer period of time and going backwards and giving those notices. Matt, great catching up with you. Thank you, sir. Yep, thank you. Thank you, Mark. Great seeing you again, as always. Thank you for having me. We will no doubt be talking to you, both of you again about this probably in the near future. Mark Guillen of the Wharton School, Matt Gold, uh, adjunct professor at Fordham University uh, Law School and also former deputy assistant U.S. trade representative for North America. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 